0: Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham, and welcome to Digging Deeper, episode 66. Through each episode, we dig deep into topics and questions to see what the Bible says. We know from science that dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals existed paleontologists have discovered their bones on every continent. So why aren't they mentioned in the Bible? Or are they? More on that later. But first, scripture teaches that God doesn't have favorites and yet Israel are God's chosen people. How do we explain this apparent contradiction? Let's find out. Greetings, Pastor Rob. I asked this same question to a pastor of my previous church two years ago. And I'm still waiting for my answer. I was doing some Bible study and I came across this verse from Romans 2, verse 11, where it states, God doesn't have any favourites. How can God have no favourites when all through the Bible, God states very clearly that the Jews are his favourite and chosen people. So the question is based on this verse from the book of Romans. It's chapter 2 and verse 11, and it says that God does not show favouritism. And I do believe another translation that says uh, God doesn't have any favorites. It's important to understand the uh, context here. So Romans chapter one, uh, what, what what Paul's trying to do in Romans for so the first few chapters, he's demonstrating that the whole world, uh, every person on the world, is imperfect. That that all of us, so God's standards up here somewhere. And all of us fall short of God's standards. So the Bible uses various words, uh, sin, trespassing, iniquities, all of that, literally just means to miss the mark. So it's an archery term. It doesn't matter how hard you try and you pull back on your bow to let that arrow go and to fly into the target. It doesn't matter how hard you try. As a human being, we never hit the target. We always fall short of the target. Uh, the target is God's glory or the standard of God's character, his excellence, his perfection. And so as human beings, we we always fall short. In Bible uh, numerology, the number of God is seven and the number of human beings is six. So six always falls short of seven. And so that's what Paul's context is here. And in chapter one of Romans, he's showing that all of the Gentiles, all of the non Jewish people, all of the Gentile nations of the world fall short of God's standard. And then in chapter two, he turns his attention on his own people and he says, okay, so that's the Gentiles, but we Jews, we also all fall short of God's standard as well. And then he gets into chapter three and he lumps all the people together, Jew and Gentile, and he says, all of us. And so that well-known verse in Romans 3.23, where he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God or the standard of God's perfection and and his character. So that's the bad news. The good news is that um, all uh, can receive God's forgiveness, God's grace uh, in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, but all are justified um, by by the finished work of Jesus. So in chapter 2 and verse 11, the context around the verse that we're looking at at the moment, he's talking about judgment day and the fact that everyone's going to be on the same level. So he says we're all sinners, we're all on the same level, and we're all going to be judged on the same basis according to the works that we have done while we're in the body. And so that's the context of that statement. God doesn't show favoritism on the day of judgment. So he's not going to go, well, you know, here's Rob Buckingham and we all love Rob. Rob's an amazing guy. So, Rob, we know that you've done some pretty dodgy stuff through your life, but, hey, you're one of my favourites, so you get to go into heaven. Sorry about some of the rest of you. That is not going to happen. We're all judged uh, on the same basis. And so with that background in mind, so I think it's important that we understand the verse that Merv is highlighting to us, Simply, in answer to your question, there is a difference between being chosen and being a favourite. So uh, the first reference to the word chosen in Scripture is Genesis 18 and verse 19, and you probably heard me talking about first reference before. There is, a, a, in, in the Bible science of Bible interpretation, it's called hermeneutics, and one of the laws of biblical interpretation it's the law of first mention or first reference. And it simply states that the first reference of a word in Scripture gives us the key to unlocking or understanding that word and that concept through the rest of Scripture. And so the first reference to the word chosen we find in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. It says, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him. It's talking about Abraham to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And then this is the key to, to the person who has been chosen, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So I want you to notice that, that being chosen is always for a purpose and it and it. Is not just about the purpose of that person. It's about that person's destiny in being a blessing to multitudes of other people, and so that—that's what we're going to understand here. That God chose Abraham to bring about the purpose for which God called Abraham, and we see that person uh, that purpose expressed in God's call to Abraham. And uh, you can look with me, if you like, with uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then this is the key to these three Verses and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham was called by God for a purpose. He was chosen for a purpose. And the purpose was that through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. God chose Abraham's descendants to be a blessing to all peoples. Now that word peoples means clans or ethnos, ethnic groups or people groups. So not just the nations, but all of the the smaller subdivisions of people within nations, right down to the minutest of the people groups. God chose Abraham to be a blessing, his descendants to be a blessing to all of the people groups on the world. So from a Christian perspective, Jesus is considered to be the fulfilment of that promise. So he's the seed or of Abraham, so the the descendant of Abraham as Jesus the Messiah. And so back to the question, God doesn't have favourites as Romans 2.11 suggests, and neither should we have favourites. The Bible is very, very clear, particularly in the book of James, um, where uh, he talks about discrimination uh, and favoritism being a sin. He says, you know, like if you if you're in a church gathering and you see someone rich walk in, you say, Whoa, do you come here to the front and sit in this lovely comfortable chair? And then someone in poor and in and in shabby dress walks in and you say, Oh, there you go, you can go and sit over there on the floor. He said, if you show that kind of favoritism between people, he said, You're actually sinning. So whenever we pick on people, And we treat them differently because of either outward characteristics like dress or wealth or whatever, or on situations or or characteristics that are beyond their choice. So things like gender or sexual orientation or race or ethnicity or disability, mental health, all of those things. If we pick on people uh, because of those things, then we have discriminated and, and we sin. So that's why it's really important for us at Bayside Church, our inclusion statement that promises that we will not discriminate and that all people are treated the same regardless of all of the things that I have just mentioned. And so discrimination is wrong and favouritism is wrong, but God doesn't have favourites. He actually wants to bless everyone and that's his purpose in choosing Israel, to be a channel of blessing to all people. This is a question that came up last week with Tal, and Tal gave his answer to it, but I want to kind of add a little bit. Do Jews recite or read? Isaiah chapter 53, and what would it have meant to the original audience? So yes, Jews, uh, at least observant Jews, I would imagine, uh, do read Isaiah 53. It's part of their scriptures, part of the Tanakh, um, but they don't see it as fulfilled by Jesus unless they are Messianic Jews. And so there are uh, those in Israel Uh, in different parts of the world who are Jewish by identity, but they also identify as messianic, which means that they believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Jewish Messiah. And so they may well see Jesus in the words of Isaiah and and chapter 53, but Jews in general would not see Jesus in these verses. So I'd encourage you to have a read of Isaiah 53 Uh, in your own time, read the entire chapter. It's not very long, but I'll just read the first six verses to you right now. In Isaiah 53, verse one, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain or took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, as I said before, Christians interpret this chapter as referring to Jesus and his vicarious suffering, that meaning that he suffered on behalf of other people. But this interpretation is not the original intention of these verses Isaiah had no understanding of what Jesus would do on a cross 700 years after he wrote these words. In fact, from memory, crucifixion was not even devised as a form of uh, capital punishment in Isaiah's day. He expressed truth in context with his cultural insights. And the cultural insights that Isaiah is drawing on here were known as the right of the substitute king. And this is something that was practised around about a millennium up to Isaiah's uh, time, up to and including. So around 1700 BC to about 700 years before Jesus. According to the Bible background commentary, when evil omens, especially uh, an eclipse, of the sun. Remembering these people, they were ancient people. They were highly superstitious. And so they didn't understand the science behind an eclipse. And so you can imagine to people like that, suddenly the entire world goes black. And so they uh, they read into that, that the gods are angry, that there's evil on the way and all of that. And And this to them suggested that the life of the king was in danger. And so what they would do is bring in a substitute king um, and and it works on the principle that evil could be transferred from one individual to another. And so when the dangerous period was to occur, the king would be replaced by a substitute uh, on whom the evil fate could fall. Uh, In some cases, this substitute was someone considered of little or no significance in the culture of the day and so invariably they would choose someone who is mentally or physically impaired and the substitute would then be exalted to the high office uh, of the king uh, for as long as a hundred days during that 100 day period the real king was kept in exile in relative isolation and then would go through various purification rituals Meanwhile, the substitute king would go through the motions of being the sovereign and sitting on the throne. He was portrayed as a shepherd, but really was a sheep who was about to be slaughtered. At the end of the time, allotted for the substitute king, he would be stripped of his royal insignias. The pagan high priest would then strike him on both cheeks and then drag him by the ears, ow, and force him to bow down before Marduk, who was the chief god of the Babylonians. Uh, Upon bowing down, the substitute would then be dragged off and put to death, and they believed that that would be transferring all evil off the real king onto the substitute, saving the real king from harm. This religious rite was the backdrop to the understanding of Isaiah chapter 53, the ancient belief that someone could take the suffering of another. And so with that backdrop in mind, what did this chapter mean to the original readers or hearers? Isaiah 53 is one of four songs uh, in this section of Prophet Isaiah. And these songs are known as the servant songs. Uh, and, And it's important that we remember they are songs. They're poems, if you like, put to music. And just the way our songs are today or our poems would be in this day and age, they are full of poetic license. They're full of metaphor. We listen to songs on the radio and they talk about all sorts of things and we know they're not literal but they're communicating a message, invariably a message of love. It's a love song. And all these different things are, uh, you know, I want to, I'm want. i going to live forever and you shine like the sun and and the moon and all of these sorts of things. They're not literal. they they are truth as meaning rather than truth as fact. And so it's important that we understand that these songs, including isaiah fifty three are full of metaphor, are full of poetic license. So with that in mind, the servant in uh, chapter fifty three is not Jesus to the original hearers. The servant is actually the nation of Israel. The nation had been disfigured by being in exile in Babylon for decades and enduring suffering in that foreign land. But Israel will once again be exalted, so much so that the other nations will be astonished. In the song, the voice that speaks is actually the voice of the nations or the voice of the kings of the nations collectively. They together are speaking about God's servant Israel, In the first few verses, they describe Israel's apparent insignificance and the suffering that Israel endured at their hands, at the hands of the nations. He had no beauty, speaking about Israel, had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, by the entire human race, which is a statement that has sadly been true of the Jews and the nation of Israel on many occasions right throughout history. These nations once considered Israel's suffering as a sign of God's rejection. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but they've changed their minds. They now see Israel's suffering as an atonement for their sins, that is, the sins of the nations. He, Israel, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we, the nations, are healed. While Israel's suffering was deserved, what he suffered was beyond what was just. It was more than the servant's sins required. This is borne out in other parts of Isaiah as well. Uh, Consider Isaiah 47 verses 5 and 6 where God himself is annoyed with Babylon for treating Israel more harshly than Israel deserved. Sit in silence, go into darkness, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people, Israel, and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand and you showed them no mercy, even on the aged. You laid a very heavy yoke. And so there God is angry that the Babylonians weren't kinder to his people Israel. Consider Isaiah 40 verses 1 and 2. It tells us that God himself treated Israel too harshly. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So even there, God in this song admits that he was harsher on Israel than he could or should have been. In Isaiah chapter 54, verses seven and eight, God may have overreacted to Israel's sins. It says, for a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, says God. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The song then concludes with the promise of national greatness. Because you suffered greatly, Israel, you will be significantly rewarded. And it's something that we see very much as as a counterpart in Philippians chapter 2 that we looked at a few weeks ago, um, where Jesus is spoken of again in song form by Paul in Philippians chapter 2. And this may well have been a song that they sang in the first century church. So Philippians 2 from verse 5, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant or a slave. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want you to notice there, all the way through those verses, it's it's God in human form taking a step down. He was God. He became a man, not just a man but a servant, not just a servant but a slave. He humbled himself even by becoming obedient to death and not just any death, crucifixion, the worst of deaths. And then it says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. I taught a message or a series actually years ago at Bayside Church called The Way Up Is Down. You can still find it on the Bayside Church website if you click on uh, Connect With God and Message Series or Teaching Series, and they're all listed in alphabetical order there for you, and there's a teaching series based on those verses in Philippians chapter 2 called The Way Up Is Down. But it's fascinating that we see that same progression in Isaiah 53 in connection with Israel. Israel were humbled, 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 humbled all the way down, and then we see the nation exalted. And Israel is still, even today, a fascinating nation. There it is um, in the middle of the Middle East, really surrounded by enemies, uh, and yet such a prosperous nation today. Uh, And I'm not saying Israel always gets it right. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm not pro-Israel at the expense of other nations. Um, But I do find it very interesting that Israel as a nation uh, and the Jews as a people uh, who have faced so much uh, persecution and so much wrong uh, over the centuries um, find themselves in, in a much better place, really in an exalted place today. And so that's what Isaiah 53 meant to the original readers or hearers. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And please like Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. You can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like Rob to answer in future episodes of Digging Deeper. Now back to Rob. Let's get into the last question. Uh, Could you discuss how we might be able to explain the scientific evidence of dinosaurs and how these fit within the story of creation or um, how it can be explained alongside the word of the Bible? So firstly, I personally don't believe that dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals are mentioned in the Bible. The Bible does trace the beginning of the universe and our planet planet back to God as the creator, as it does, of course, in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, but it does this using metaphorical language. And so Genesis chapter 1 is written in a combination of Hebrew prose and poetry, probably a little bit more prose than poetry, I would think. It's the Bible's prologue, and, and it's important that we see it in that way because it is a vitally important introduction that gives us the context for all that follows in Scripture. That is that God is an all-powerful creator who made all things and loves and cares for his entire creation. Now, I do understand that there are various views of Genesis 1 and 2, and I have talked about these things in a little bit more detail in time past on the Digging Deeper podcast. So if you want to go back, you can check out Digging Deeper number four, which uh, talks about science and the Bible, and Digging Deeper episode 11, which is titled Understanding Genesis. So have a listen to those two episodes, and that'll give you some really good background uh, of this topic. But just by way of summary, there are many varying views uh, of the creation story in Genesis chapters one and two. And understanding that those two chapters offer two completely different stories of the creation. And so they can't both be true, factually true. And that's why it's important that we understand that this is, I believe anyway, that this is metaphorical, allegorical language because those two stories don't need to agree factually because these these chapters are truth as meaning, And we ask ourselves, what is the meaning here? And then what is the truth that I can draw from these verses and apply to my life today? Even though these are ancient texts, thousands of years old, what is the truth that I can apply to my life today to make my life better and to impact the people around me? But just very quickly, Let's look at the three main views of chapters one and two of Genesis. The first is a literal understanding of these chapters, and that is that there were six literal 24-hour periods, days in which God created. Evening was, morning was, the day one. Evening, morning, day two, and so on. Uh, And there are those who believe that who are also young earth creationists, And so they believe in Bishop Usher's timeline that he developed 100 or 200 years ago, um, that the earth is probably maybe 6,000 years old. Um, Some young earth creationists give a little bit of leeway there and say maybe it's 10,000 years, but it's no older than that. And then there are those who believe the mature creation theory, and they say that God actually, when he created six to 10,000 years ago, but he made everything mature. And so it was already old on day one. So, for example, Adam was created on day one as a man, so he wasn't created as a baby. So on day one, he was a day old, but he was also maybe 25. And so how old was the creation on day one? Which, I mean, it's a great question and it makes a lot of sense and, and I used to hold to that um, a few years ago. But in these theories, uh, some believe that evolution is absolutely flat-out dead wrong. Um, Some others believe that dinosaurs are merely made up to support the theory of evolution, which is an interesting statement or thought, really, because, you know, what are paleontologists digging up um, all around the world? Um, Others believe that dinosaurs were real animals, but they became corrupted in some shape or form, and they were punished by not being taken on the ark or in the ark, and then died in the flood. And that's why they aren't mentioned, or that's why we don't see them on the earth today. So that's the first interpretation. The second understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 is that these uh, six days, actually six eras or epochs, uh, each of them lasting for millions of years. The verse of scripture um, that is used there to back that up is that A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. And so they say, well, yeah, it says a day in Genesis 1, but it's really a thousand year or thousands of years or millions of years. And that view explains evolution and dinosaurs. Uh, Prehistoric animals obviously fit into those time periods, but they aren't mentioned in the Bible. The third view of Genesis, really Genesis 1 to 11, is that those chapters are all metaphorical in nature. And so we break up Genesis. Chapters 1 to 11 is metaphorical, and chapter 12 onwards, starting with Abraham, is all historical. And that's a view that I hold to these days. And so those first 11 chapters of Genesis are to be understood allegorically. They are, as I said before, truth as meaning rather than truth as fact. And the important truth, I think, that is borne out, particularly in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, is that God is the creator. The universe and all that is in it is not a random chance accident that God is the creator and that the creation is very old, um, that is backed up by science. The creation is billions of years old and that dinosaurs are a group of reptiles that lived on earth for about 245 million years. Incidentally, in 1842, the English naturalist Sir Richard Owen coined the term Dinosauria, uh, derived from two Greek words, dinos, which means fearfully great, and sauros, which means lizard. So a dinosaur is a fearfully great lizard. And, of course, the dinosaur fossils um, certainly bear this out. And they've, paleontologists have found uh, fossils of dinosaurs and other uh, prehistoric animals on all seven continents, so they definitely are real. So back to our original question, the dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible. Well, some have mentioned or suggested that there's a couple of animals that are mentioned in the Tanakh that may be dinosaurs. And so looking at Job chapter 40 and verse 15, look at Behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox." So some have suggested that behemoth, which is an animal we really actually don't know (laughs) what animal it is, uh, could be a dinosaur. And yeah, maybe it is, but it probably isn't. Um, The word probably refers to a water ox, something like a hippopotamus, something similar to that, maybe an animal that is now extinct, uh, or maybe it was a hippo. Uh, another animal that is mentioned several times in the Tanakh is the Leviathan. So just looking at one reference of the Leviathan, Psalm 104 and verse 26, there the ships go to and fro and Le- Leviathan, which you formed, to frolic there. Now, if you're my vintage or older, you will remember a song in the 60s by a uh, folk duo, Peter, Paul and Mary. Uh, They had a lot of hits in the early 60s and one of them was Puff the Magic Dragon, which some people said was about puffing on a marijuana joint. I don't know if that's true. I loved it as a kid. I used to love listening to it and my kids used to love listening to it when they were little. Puff the Magic Dragon and he frolics in the autumn mist and possibly the song is based Roughly on Psalm 104, verse 26, the ships go to and fro, Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. So the interesting thing about Behemoth um, and Leviathan is that both of these animals only appear in the poetic sections of the Bible. So the Behemoth is mentioned only in Job and Leviathan is mentioned in Job and Psalms and then in the poetic sections or the songs of Isaiah. So remember, they are metaphorical, allegorical. They're using poetic license. So are these animals real? Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. Does it matter? No. Puff the Magic Dragon is a cute song. Is Puff the Magic Dragon a real animal? I used to think so when I was four, but now I think it's probably not. So... Why aren't dinosaurs alive today? Um, uh, Are they mentioned in the Bible? First of all, no, they're not. I don't believe they are. I don't believe they're um, Leviathan or Behemoth or any other animal. I just don't believe they're mentioned in Scripture. Um, Science suggests that dinosaurs were eradicated um, a long time ago uh, by an asteroid ploughing into the earth or maybe some extreme volcanic Eruptions or maybe both. but these things called wide, caused widespread um, climate change and uh, it led to the extinction of these prehistoric animals. Of course, uh, a literalist view of the Bible may suggest that they didn't make it onto the ark because they were too big or maybe they were too naughty and they were punished as a result. There is another possibility though, um, lizards, snakes, amphibians, and also coral are uh, uh, all animals known as indeterminate growers, that is, that they grow until they die. So they grow for the entire length of their life. And so what if these animals lived longer? Well, if they lived longer, they would grow to bigger sizes. And so when you think about lizards, for example, some of them look an awful lot like prehistoric animals, uh, just smaller. So what if they lived longer and they grew bigger, would prehistoric animals, as we know them, still be alive today? I'll just leave that with you as a question. But I don't believe that um, dinosaurs are mentioned in Scripture. Uh, I just don't believe they're there. And and it's because the Bible starts with this prologue, this beautiful song, this metaphorical picture of God as creator, and then it gets into history That is more modern than dinosaurs. The history of the Bible starts about 4,000 years ago. and, um, And so dinosaurs were extinct well and truly by that stage, and so they just don't make an appearance. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page. Join us next week as Pastor Rob does a deep dive into complementarian theology and what the Bible teaches about headship and submission. We hope you'll join us then.